1: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
2: Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Chad Bray, talking to you here from the studios of the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. Once again, we're finishing the week with a flurry of developments in various spheres around the world. And once again, those developments all seem to have one thing in common the self-ruled island of Taiwan and its democratically elected government which Beijing considers a breakaway province. Let me give you just a short list of the developments in the past 48 hours. Joe Biden invited Taiwan to what's been called a summit for democracy in Washington next month. That's just 9 days after he personally restated his commitment to the one China policy. And that the United States, quote, strongly opposes unilateral efforts to change the status quo or undermine peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, end quote, while speaking in person with Xi Jinping on their very first presidential video call. Back here in China, Beijing's Taiwan Affairs Office announced it would be blacklisting more people it calls independent secessionists. That's just days after slapping $74 million U.S. worth of fines on Taiwanese companies operating in the mainland for donating to pro-independence candidates. Meanwhile, in the South Pacific, the capital city of the Solomon Islands is currently under curfew after protesters stormed the parliament. They're angry about the government's decision to switch its diplomatic relations from Taipei to Beijing. And in Central America, the U.S. has warned candidates for this weekend's presidential elections in Honduras not to switch their allegiances from Taiwan to China. And all of this brings me to the subject of today's feature episode. We're going to Europe, and specifically the tiny nation of Lithuania and its relationship with Taiwan. Last week, Finbar Birmingham, our Brussels-based correspondent, was penciled in to talk with us, but we had to postpone that talk due to the fact that he found himself in the Lithuanian capital for a reporting trip. He was looking into the growing feud with China, but he also happened to be in the right place at the right time for the opening of a Taiwanese representative office. It's the first such named outpost in Europe. Two days later, Beijing officially downgraded its diplomatic relationship with Lithuania, and yesterday, its foreign ministry spokesman, Zhao Lijian, announced that Lithuania must pay a price for its mistakes. Fidbar Birmingham, thanks for joining us. You know, the last time we heard from you, you were in Rome during the G20.
3: Are you on some sort of geopolitical bus tour? How did you end up in Lithuania? It's the glamorous life of a correspondent, Chad. Um, Lithuania has been an area that's been top of my reporting agenda for some months now. Uh, surprisingly, so when I first started doing the job, you know, in February, I had my eye on the calendar and maybe thought the German election would be the big story this year. And of course, that's been that's been a major one, and we're sort of waiting for how that falls out. But Lithuania has been sort of overshadowing it. It's really been sort of banging the drum on China population of less than 3 million has been hogging hugging the headlines. So my intention was to, to travel to Lithuania and find a little bit more about why they're engaging in this um, feud with China. A lot of people here in Brussels ask me that all the time. I mean, why Lithuania? Why now? Because there are plenty of other problems for the government in Vilnius to deal with. It has on its hands a hybrid warfare situation from Belarus, where the embattled dictator Alexander Lukashenko is... Weaponizing migrants from from places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, parts of Africa, flying them into Belarus and then forcing them over the borders with Lithuania, Latvia, and Poland.
2: Yeah, and and Finbar, it, it's interesting. You know, we've seen a number of images recently of, of of the situation on the Poland-Belarus border. It looks extremely intense, and you know, it seems to be getting worse. So it's an odd moment for you know Lithuania to go and sort of poke the panda, so to speak you know, given the entire situation they have on the eastern border with Belarus.
3: Yeah, it is, Chad. And it's a sort of, um, I mean, the the, the stuff with China kind of predates this a little bit. You know, they were involved in this situation with China before the latest event with Belarus kicked off in the summertime. But, you know, I, I do hear this a lot, as I said, in the words of one diplomat in Brussels who asked me a few weeks ago, when you've got this crisis on your doorstep, why bother crossing the road to pick a fight with China? this was something I wanted to find out about. Uh, Now, at the crux of the issues with China was the opening of a Taiwanese representative office in Vilnius. It was announced in February. Uh, It was met with this sort of uh, backlash from Beijing, you might expect, you know, the usual statements. And that's actually now being being translated into some action, some retaliatory action, action from China. But this was the top of my sort of agenda to find out why, when you've got these issues on your doorstep, are you sort of involved in this situation with China? So I spoke to two of the most prominent Lithuanian lawmakers who've been pushing the envelope on this to ask whether there was any link between their border rows, their border situation and the fight with China.
0: Everything is connected. Everything is connected. And when we are talking about authoritarian regime in Belarus, we are of course talking about authoritarian regime in Russia because it's being coordinated what we have near the borders. And of course, uh, it's got a lot to do with uh, how Russia and China is dealing, because they are playing the geopolitical games against the West, and Russia wouldn't do that if they would... Didn't had, a uh, big, big brother in, Ch- uh, sorry for my quote, big, big brother's hand in China's view. Because they know, they know that China will be, would stand with them, and we have one front. It's, it's not only about Belarus or Russia, which is close, but authoritarian regimes against the democracies. Mm. What, what we have here is not only Belarus attacking us in, with migrant crisis. It's about, um, authoritarian regimes of uh, attacking democratic, democratic Western countries.
3: Yeah, that was Matlas Maldegis, who is a conservative lawmaker. Um, he's very involved in this situation with Taiwan. Uh, and, and actually, most of those involved seem to be conservatives. This is a pattern we see across Europe, broadly speaking. Um, the right is far more engaged in this sort of hardliner behavior against China than the left. Number of reasons for that. Maybe we can get into that as a, a whole other podcast. The next person you'll hear from is actually somebody from the left, Davila Shaklenia. Uh, she was sanctioned by China uh, earlier this year. You recall the sanctions blitz in, in March because she sponsored a bill in the Lithuanian Parliament recognizing uh, the alleged persecution of Uyghurs in Xinjiang by the Chinese government as genocide. China, of course, denies this, and this is why they slapped her with with sanctions. We met on Thursday last week, we had lunch in a bistro next to the parliament and over a traditional dish of Lithuanian forest mushroom soup. She explained to me where she sees the links between the situation on the border with Belarus and Russia and that of China and Taiwan. So
0: probably
1: we have you know, to take a look from a, bit, uh, a little bit further and reflect on the situation. I believe that people's Republic of China is uh, watching very closely and assessing the situation because it's like a playground for them to see uh, if the European Union will be united enough will be unified enough uh, to actually react efficiently also next to that if EU and United States will be able to work together if the bigger democracies club will be able to withstand the propaganda of Lukashenko and Putin in the background and understand that this is not uh, a Um, migration situation but this is a hybrid attack situation where migration is instrumentalized to put political pressure on EU as Lukashenko um, basically like a rat in the corner is trying to uh, deflect attention from his crimes against civil society and portion of political prisoners and uh, you know pushing EU to lift the sanctions to sit with him at the table so that's why it's very important you know for us to stick together, because if China sees that it's easy for, you know, to break us apart, to lie through their teeth and uh, to, to feed us propaganda, we are going to have bigger problems like that.
2: So, Finbar, it's, it's probably worth reminding our listeners uh, who might not remember what happened in Lithuania around the fall of Berlin Wall or even the 50 years preceding that when Lithuanians had basically reclaimed their country and declared independence after being occupied first by Soviet Russia, then Nazi Germany, then again by the Soviets. The memories of state propaganda, secret police, and authoritarianism are not ancient history. It's living memory for anyone who was over the age of 40 in Lithuania. So tell us how you ended up at an event that wasn't supposed to be open to the public, let alone known by the media.
3: Yeah, I mean, it was it was just about being in the right place at the right time. Landed in Lithuania late on Wednesday night, flew via Munich, and woke up on Thursday morning in a chilly Vilnius to hear a text message from my editor in Hong Kong telling me that this long-planned Taiwanese representative office was opening its doors that day. This had been a closely guarded secret. They didn't want to let people know when it was going to be happening in advance, because I guess they didn't want to to rock the boat too much. I mean, as I learned later, there was a sort of a tacit understanding between the Lithuanian Foreign Ministry and apparently the American Embassy in Vilnius that there wouldn't be a major presentation, there wouldn't be any sort of a ceremony, and there wouldn't be any international journalists. I'd only learned this after the fact, of course. So I looked it up on Google Maps. turned out it was only about 10 minutes' walk from my hotel, so I wrapped up warm, scarf, coat, hat, and headed on down there. Now, when I got there, I found a pretty nondescript office building. There weren't any signs or anything to indicate that there was a Taiwanese de facto embassy. So I'm sort of looking around, trying to find out where this might be. I'm asking a couple of people if they know and nobody has a clue. Don't forget, this was the first day of operation. It's probably looking a wee bit shady. But anyway, I had a lunch appointment, so I rushed off to that and it happened that the person I was meeting, the lawmaker, Davila Sakilena, that you just heard from. She was visiting the office with colleagues after lunch, so she kindly invited me to join them. So off we go. Met at the front of the Lithuanian parliament, uh, a group of lawmakers, and they were all carrying gifts, flowers, cakes. They had bags of of goodies and this would be the first ever visit to this de facto embassy. And just by pure happenstance, I was the only journalist that was there. in Finbar, I, I can just imagine the
2: excitement and, and thrill when you look around and realize that you're the only journalist in attendance Um, you know, it's always exciting to be sort of the first person there and be able to tell the story. But at what point did the people there, the parliamentarians, the uh, Taiwanese officials, realize that you were a journalist in their midst? And and was there a change in the
3: mood? I don't think the parliamentarians cared at all. They were all very friendly and they were happy to have me along. And I actually spoke to a few of them over the course of the weekend, and they thanked me for for coming along and and so on. Um, The Taiwanese were a wee bit Kg, I think you know they're in a vulnerable position I suppose where you know they, they maybe were requested not to have any international journalists there and so when I rocked up and introduced myself they were perfectly polite but I could tell that they were a little bit worried it was only after the event that I heard via an intermediary that they had had this sort of tacit understanding with the uh, with the government. I actually asked the, the Lithuanian foreign minister the next day when I when I interviewed him, you know, was there an official agreement? And he said there wouldn't wasn't any official warrant, uh, you know order not to do this, and so he wouldn't be drawn on that. But I mean, it shows that despite this sort of propensity to rock the boat on China, that they are a wee bit worried. That obviously, if they'd really wanted to go to town on this, they would have had a big opening ceremony. They would have had more than what they did. So it it showed to me that there was still some sort of uh, effort to keep a lid on it. And of course... Um just to take it back another step, the 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 embassy, the de facto embassy had been scheduled to open or muted to open during the summer, but they'd put it back by a couple of months. The foreign minister got some criticism for this because people thought he was just trying to delay it while the sort of situation with China camped down. But but anyway, we finally you know, we, we got we walked over to the to this um building I finally found out where the office was. It was up on the 16th floor. There was no way I would have known that otherwise. We got there and they all exchanged their gifts. Um, there was some special issue Taiwanese whiskey given to the Lithuanian visitors. They give a, a sort of gold picture of the parliament to their hosts. Speeches were made. Everybody was getting their photos taken under the flags and next to the plaque. I, I'll play you know, a wee snippet from the head of Lithuania's Foreign Affairs Committee here. The sound isn't great, but you get the gist. And I just want to say this guy, uh, Jigmantas Pavlionis, I hope I pronounced his name correctly. He's a real hardliner. He's very hawkish. I was at an event after this over the weekend. Um, It was the Forum for Democracy in Lithuania, and he spoke incredibly hawkishly about China. He's very influential in the, in the leading party there. Um, he's conservative and he's also the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee. So, you know, he's, he, he, his opinions carry some weight. Uh,
4: well, nothing much to say. This is just the beginning. Uh, and be sure that you have real friends in the parliament. We will try to make all other obstacles that you still have in Lithuania to vanish. We want you to feel at home here to bring, you know, results and to, to show that, you know, this is exam, exactly example to follow. Uh, we will have a lot of enemies on the road, uh, but uh, I'm quite sure that we will win. This is the future, uh, and we are all in threat. Uh, and I told to one of the three journalists today that, you know, if... We are asking for solidarity on a lot of other attacks, be it you know, Belarusian freedom or Ukrainian freedom or our own borders. We first of all have to show that solidarity with countries like you, who are very much in the attack. And uh, we will do it, Lester. We are grateful for your own uh, courage to come here. And uh, we will work hard to make this democratic war in and and other places.
3: At this stage, um, a bit of a hush descends on the place. Um, I thought think people were sort of winding down and getting ready to leave. I wasn't sure what was going on, but then people said something about a special guest. And this older man shuffles in with a walking stick. He's very frail. He's well wrapped up against the Baltic weather. And this was Vytautas Landsbergis. He's widely considered the founding father of Lithuanian democracy. Very frail at 89, but still hugely influential in the country's ruling Conservative Party. The suspicion is that he's still pulling the strings behind the scenes. To look at him, he, he, he looked quite aged, but, you know, very powerful, very well-known man. He was the first post-Soviet leader. He was one of the main campaigners and, you know, activists who helped bring down Soviet rule in Lithuania. And his presence there was kind of a big deal. And maybe I only sort of realized after the event how big of a deal this was. You had this these conservative lawmakers, including Pavlionis, who I, we just heard from crying as they spoke to this guy. It was it was a huge piece of symbolism.
2: Yeah, and and you know you, you can sort of see a, a real link here. Um you know anyone listening in Hong Kong remembers back in in 2019 Human chains were formed across the city, uh, you know, but uh, people might not know this, that a lot of that goes back to what happened in Lithuania and their neighbours in Latvia and Estonia when they called for independence and they were protesting against the Communist Party of the Soviet Union.
3: Yeah, they, they, they had these Baltic chains or are holding hands across the Baltics or something. It was called like that. So, I mean, this goes back to the, this is almost the crux of where a lot of these ideologically driven politicians see the argument here. They see this as a pushback against authoritarianism. They point to their own history with the USSR, and they see that their fights on the border with Belarus, with Russia, they see that as, as as sort of similar to what's happening in Taiwan and China. So they see the modern migrant crisis, the artificial migrant crisis with Lukashenko. They see the sort of events of 1991 when the Soviet Union sent in the tanks to try to crush the nascent democracy movement as as all being part of the same piece. You know, the, the parliament still has fragments of barricades around there, some symbolic because parliamentarians were were barricaded in as there were tanks rolling through the streets in January 1991. I think there was 13 people killed. And then you had this patriarch of, of the democracy movement in the room talking about the links between Lithuania's historical fight against communism and Taiwan's situation with China, people were getting really emotional at this stage. There was more than one of these, uh, you know, lawmakers were, were crying. People turning to me and saying, you know, you realize that you're w- witnessing history. And it was quite, quite a moment to be, to be involved in.
2: Yeah. And, and so even though you, you technically crashed the party, they were happy to see you. <clears throat>
3: I mean, look, as I I explained, this was something that emerged afterwards that I wasn't supposed to be there. Uh, I mean, but I suppose all the best stories come when you're not supposed to be there. It was just happenstance and it was just pure fluke, really, that I happened to know one of these politicians who invited me along. So what does this tell
2: you about the sensitivities of the whole exercise? You know, on the one hand, it's a celebration evoking the events that changed the course of history in Lithuania. On the other hand, it's a case of, please... Keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody. We, we don't want to rock the boat too much.
3: Yeah, I mean, it shows the, the sort of dichotomy at play. These lawmakers are very much the hardliners. They didn't care if this got out. You know, a lot of them were posting pictures on their social media. But I think the government was a little bit more wary. There were no representatives of the government there, of course, because that would be in breach with the one China policy to have these sort of very top level official visits and so on would give fuel to China's claims that the one China policy is in violation here. You know, it shows that there are some concerns about this boiling over. I think that not not all of the Lithuanian government is aligned on this. Um, earlier in the year, the prime minister was was taken aback by the response from, from China when she was speaking with members of the business community and they were informing her about some of the sort of economic retaliation which have been going on. So I think like the the likes of the Foreign Minister and his cohort, you've got a very sort of vocal foreign vice foreign minister and Mantas Adam Yenis. They're sort of fighting this from an ideological point of view, particularly Adam Yenis. And I think that the Foreign Minister is being dragged along with that a little bit. But there are dissenting voices or at least some people who think that this is not really where they want Lithuania to be. And, and I do think that some, peop- some, some people there realize or, or per- think that there, there are bigger, more important um, issues to deal with, such as the border crisis, as we discussed.
2: In Finbar, you know, with, with the border crisis going on, with a country the size of Lithuania uh, pushing back against China, why would Lithuania be the one country, the one nation out of the European Union to sort of take on China? Is it about a symbolism of standing up to an authoritarian government?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's part of it for sure. I mean, there's these... Uh, historical parallels that we've discussed and there 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 certainly is that thread running through this but i mean that's not that's not all of it there's the connection of the united states lithuania is among the most transatlantically minded members of the eu the baltic nations generally as well as poland see the united states as their last guarantor of security from the immediate threat of russia the shadow of the soviet union still hangs large there and so for a nation of three million people, what we've seen over the last few weeks is how much the Lithuanians have got the U.S.'s ear on this one. My sense is that if this was only about Russia and Belarus, Washington would not be quite as interested. But by playing the China card, they've got their attention. Um, no, And So that fits neatly in with their sort of general thesis on authoritarianism, but also their desire to have the U.S. support for, you know, what's going on on their borders and so on. So by linking it to China, it's quite cleverly brought the U.S. on board. When I was in Vilnius, Uzra Zaya, who's the U.S. Undersecretary for Human Rights, was also in town. She warned any country thinking of threatening Lithuania that the U.S. has the Vilnius's back. This week, the Lithuanian foreign minister's in Washington. He's already met with Kurt Campbell, who's the architect of Biden's Asia-Pacific strategy. And he met yesterday with Wendy Sherman, who's the second most senior diplomat. Not to keep repeating myself, but this is a country of less than three million people. Um, You know, as the Global Times pointed out earlier in the week, it's less than the the Beijing district of Chaoyang. But that's a lot of access. I mean, it shows how much the US is supporting what Lithuania is doing. I think if they didn't have that tacit support from from the United States, then there's no way they would be sort of taking this on. You know, when I interviewed the Foreign Minister Landsberg, who you'll hear from shortly, he was quite clear he wants the European Union to step up up support. We saw the United States on Thursday last week uh, confirm that there would be a 600 million export credit support given through the US Exim Bank to Lithuania. The Foreign Minister told me this is linked to the to the sort of uh, the the cushion the blow of the, of the China Chinese economic coercion as they call it, and, and so beyond the politics, another commonly cited explanation for why Lithuania feels it is in a position to take on China It's not really very economic reliant on Beijing. Only two point five percent of of Lithuania's exports go to China. That's per European Union stats. And Chinese customs stats show that out of the 27 EU members, Lithuania is way down there on 22nd in terms of total trade with China. Not a lot in the grand scheme of things, and if we just compare that to my home country of Ireland, Ireland's one of the few countries in the world that has a trade surplus with with China. So they really try and keep a keep a lid. They don't they don't want to put their head above the parapet. So Ireland's often criticised by sort of campaigners and and you know pe- people who want to see a harder line on China as being sort of commercially captured by Beijing. You know, but they, they have a lot more to lose. Lithuania doesn't really.
2: Yeah, so so economically, Lithuania doesn't really have a lot of skin in the game, as opposed to, say, Australia, which, you know, has been targeted for economic sanctions by Beijing for stepping out of line.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, people sort of draw those parallels all the time. Um, but doesn't mean that nobody's going to lose anything. I mean, uh, there are always some people vulnerable to punishment because t- there are still 2.5% of the exports. I spoke with a few of those people when I was in Vilnius Um, had one manufacturer tell me about how, uh, you know, Chinese authorities have, have blocked freight trains traveling from China to Europe from stopping in Vilnius. So this guy used to get his materials via rail, a high tech manufacturer, um, but now he has to source them from or get them rerouted via Poland or Latvia. Another guy told me that he's another high tech manufacturer, um, that he'd been sourcing parts from China. And um, the Chinese supplier had told him a few months back that these are unavailable due to an electricity shortage in, in China. Now, we, we, we've reported extensively about the power shortage in China. That's legitimate, but yet these Lithuanian buyers were able to source the same parts from Germany. And what was happening was the Chinese companies were still selling them to the German buyers, but it was very convenient to be able to tell the Lithuanian buyers that they didn't have any because of the power shortage. So, I mean... you, there, there's always a degree of, of, of greyness here. You know, there's always some sort of blurring of the lines. You have, have had cheese, milk and dairy companies been told that their, their products can't get through customs. They find pests on them. I mean, that's quite similar to what happened to, for example, whenever the Canadian authorities detained Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver, in the next weeks, we saw Canadian canola seeds being detained at Chinese customs and eventually banned because they said they'd found pests. You know, I was speaking to somebody in the peat industry. Do, do you know what peat is, Chad? How, how does that translate into American
2: Uh, Well, I I know what it is simply because of the smoky whiskey I enjoy, Fidbar.
3: Well, exactly. Peat is something that you find in the ground. I spent many a back-breaking summer in County Tipperary digging this stuff up. It's a sort of, you can use it for for fuel or you can use it as a sort of soil or, or, you know, for for, for growing. But it's a big export in Lithuania and, in fact, in all the Baltic nations. I was talking to somebody in this industry and he sent me some screenshots in Chinese from a WeChat group where the official Chinese peat association had been asking its members not to buy Lithuanian peat because of the fact that Lithuania had exited the 17 plus one grouping, which is, I think we've talked about on the podcast before. But I mean, so so, so despite the low level of dependency, there's always somebody who's going to lose out here. There's always somebody who's going to have their lunch eaten. And that's one of the things I asked Foreign Minister Gabrielis Lansbergis about when I interviewed him the day after the Taiwanese office had been officially opened. Now,
2: FIBAR, didn't you mention earlier a different Landsbergis that you had spoken to?
3: I did. Very well spotted, Chad. If you recognize the name, Lansbergis is the grandson of the aforementioned patriarch of the conservative movement. So this is a real sort of dynasty in Lithuania. Uh, many in Vilnius's political circles told me that they see junior as being a little bit less uh, decisive as se- than senior. Uh, I was having a drink with one analyst there who told me that if Landsberg as senior was in charge now or if he was the foreign minister he would have been at the de facto embassy. Of course, he was at the de facto embassy, but I mean in his official capacity. And now that would have been a truly diplomatic storm because that would have certainly meant meant sort of breach of the one China policy. Here's a few cuts from the interview with Burgess. I started out by asking him the same question I've been asked in Brussels dozens of times this year. Why has Lithuania gotten into a scrap with China?
5: Well, Lithuania's not falling off with China. That's that's probably the main misconception. What we are trying to do is that we are... and probably one of the themes that will be heard throughout the uh, forum today and, and, and tomorrow is that we are seeing that um, democracies need to support each other. And there's a general intention among the Lithuanian people uh, to have more meaningful ties with the democratic uh, uh, or democracy supporting people across the globe. Therefore, our diplomatic uh, network is being uh, uh, overlooked, I mean, uh, revisited, probably, that's a better word. So, we're opening an embassy this year in South Korea. We've just opened an embassy in Australia. Uh, Next year, Singapore and in Taipei. So, obviously, it is also geographically far. But uh, we have economic interests in Indo-Pacific. We understand that our partners have a security interest in Indo Pacific. Uh, therefore, this, interest, this region is is of interest to us. And uh,
3: how to you strengthen your ties with the like minded. Hmm. Yeah, and so the, the, the history of your country with the Soviet Union, with the sort of Belarusian and Russian situation now. Do you find that um, you perhaps are more in tune to the threat of authoritarianism than maybe other parts of Europe? Do you have difficulty engaging them in this in this fight, so to speak?
5: Well, obviously, you know, we we are a nation that very well still very well understands and remembers what it is to be under occupation and uh, uh, the struggle of. Getting free and getting out and rebuilding your country basically from a democratic ruin. Um, so, uh, because even the young politicians who are now part of their current government or the current parliament, they were still of a generation that lived a small portion of their lives, but lived under occupation so it is very well felt and, and very well understood what it means to be coerced be pressured and try to uh, to defend your liberty
3: i then asked him how would he assess the european union strategy on china lithuania is known to be among the most skeptical in the block of things like strategic autonomy, uh, you know, it's one of the most transatlantically minded EU members. As mentioned before, and uh, just before this interview took place, they had confirmed that that financial package that I mentioned with Washington.
5: It is a starting point. Yeah, we we were starting this this discussion, but uh, I think this the the partnership pillar was probably the most. Um, used and kind of thought through in in the institutions So kind of this was the, the driving the driving force but we feel from the from the societies across Europe that basically we need to talk about the the parts where we are being challenged where the like-minded countries are being challenged mm-hmm. press and course and it also has to be a part of agenda a very clear agenda that there cannot be uh, no partnership without trust, and when you you know, in, in when you trust somebody, you have to say everything that you have on your mind.
3: Mm. And so, do you want to see that mix revised so that the systemic rival is perhaps playing a greater role in the partnership? Not a greater role. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to
5: compare them. I mm. wish you know, for example, just to give you one one example, like exactly a year ago when the CAI was discussed in European Parliament, and suddenly you know my colleagues in European Parliament. Started discussing about the situation in Xinjiang, and uh, and it was not part of the debate before, and it very quickly became a part of the debate. And then the sanctioning of certain members of uh, uh, Chinese uh, political elite, and the counter-sanctioning of European Parliament members and national parliaments, and you know it went on. But that is basically an indication that we don't have neither consensus but nor the debate. So,
3: what's our stance? And we need to have it mm. I just want to push you on the support from the EU because it does seem like the the United States is materially offering support in the six hundred million dollar export credits um, do you want more than just rhetoric from Brussels?
5: Well, I would say that uh, it would be appreciated mm. what would you sort of what sort of areas of support would you appreciate Well, basically I mean it's in all our interest, you know, that uh, neither country would suffer if its supply chains are being cut or something like that. So that uh, we could find an and ways ways around it and help with the help from institutions or either the help between the countries in the EU. You know, we could sort of these things out. It yeah. would be much easier and probably even impossible to occur as one, one economy, one country.
3: I wanted to find out just how far the would push the envelope on this one. China says... Lithuania has breached the one China principle, which is what the Beijing calls it, Lithuania says it hasn't breached the one China policy, which is of course the EU policy, which Lithuania follows rather than the Chinese one. But does it plan to stick within those parameters? I wanted to find out. So are you happy that Lithuania has been sort of crucially involved in sort of raising the Taiwan issue at the, the European level?
5: Well, I'm proud,
3: I'm proud, that it's, it's an important discussion.
5: And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we're having it now because it's it's high time that we had this.
3: Yeah, you know it needs to be looked at. And Just as the EU's China relations, you think needs to be redrawn. I mean, do you still? I know that I suppose the European policy is to still respect this one-China policy. I mean, do, do do you think that needs to be re- redressed? You know, this is what we're repeating. You know, we are.
5: Uh, holding the, the one China one China policy mm-hmm. and uh, I think in this regard uh, nothing is is changing from our side but what it feels like that China is uh, narrowing the space for
3: w- what it feels as the one China policy mm-hmm. I know that you that you are sort of at, at keeping in with the one China policy but do you agree with it?
5: Well, it's an international principle for us, you know. We've signed an agreement. Yeah, but do you agree with it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a government official. <laughs> yeah, I
3: mean, it, I mean, it, because it seems as though, obviously, you're you're quite pally with Taipei. You you know, you've had these grievances with Beijing, and I'm just wondering, like, in principle, is it something that you you have an issue with? We honour our agreements.
2: So you know, we've seen the pushback uh, in recent days, you know, about this, you know. Downgrading relations between Lithuania and Beijing, and and other things. But how is this playing in the EU? What are your sources saying? How are they reacting to this?
3: I think that they are otherwise distracted by other things. I think that this is not top of the EU's agenda. Um, this place is riddled with COVID. I mean, everywhere is talking about new lockdowns. I went to the midday press briefing at the commission to ask them about Lithuania, and I was the only one talking about it. Of course, there, a lot of people are talking about it through another lens, through the Belarus migrant uh, situation, um, the hybrid warfare as they as they're describing it. So, I mean, it seems to be that the EU... Would prefer not to get involved in this. This is often the way. Um, they are currently trying to arrange a, an EU-China summit, and just yesterday I reported that they're going to renew sanctions on Chinese officials um, in December. So I mean, I think that that's already probably going to rock the boat a wee bit, and I think that this Lithuania situation has been thrust onto the European Union, and they would rather that it wasn't there um they of course have given their rhetorical backing to to lithuania they have confirmed time and again that they have not breached the one china policy and you know so 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 that that's where we stand i mean i, I don't think that 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 you know the EU is going to sort of follow the US in offering concrete financial support in that way. But the EU is working on some tools that would theoretically help Lithuania, but they may be years in the making where there's an economic coercion instrument, which is an anti-economic coercion instrument, I should say, which we will see in draft form in December. But the way that things work here, that could be ages before it's actually usable. You know, so I think Lithuania is... Not top of the agenda here, at least on the China issue. And again, people are still a little bit confused about why Lithuania seems to be getting engaged in this sort of dispute whenever it's got massive problems with neighboring Belarus. Um, Almost like the opposite of the the United States, the, um, the European Union is far more interested in the threat of Russia and Belarus because it's a neighbor. It's right here. You know, it's looming large on the borders. Um, whereas the U.S. is far more more worried about the threat of China. So I think that by sort of playing the China card, it's engaged the United States, but the EU is still razor sharp focused on the Russia-Belarus stuff.
2: Finbar, thank you so much for joining us and and, and telling us this story. I, I think this is something that, you know, people need to pay attention to. But as you say, there are local issues that seem to have everyone's
3: distracted. Thanks, Chad. I think... One thing to add on on, on China and, and, and Europe is where China will lose the hearts and minds of Europeans will probably be more on a local front. The stories that you see really capture the attention of readers and, and so on in and, and Europe is when they see or when they think that China is in, interfering in, in, in democracy and stuff. We had a situation in Denmark a couple of weeks ago where Chinese diplomats were tearing down posters of uh, local Uh, candidate because it had the Tibetan flag. You know, you have these stories about um, Chinese officials trying to stop, you know, book readings about Xi Jinping. Things like that, which are not really major in the grand scheme of things, are far more relatable. It goes back to these issues being local than perhaps a skirmish in the South China Sea, or perhaps the plight of Uyghur people in Xinjiang or perhaps the national security laws implementation in Hong Kong. So for politicians, of course, they are all paying attention to these broad geopolitical issues. But for local people here in Europe, I think those are TV issues, whereas the other stuff happens on your doorstep. So those are the things that I think maybe will sort of lead to a shift in attitudes in the long term. Well, Finbar,
2: it's been very informative. We're looking forward to speaking to you next time from whatever part of Europe you end up in. Thanks again. Be safe in uh, Brussels.
3: Next up, back to Ireland for Christmas, but I'll talk to you soon.
2: And that's all for this week of the China Geopolitics podcast. And for a short period of time, that's all for me. You'll be hearing from a new presenter beginning next week. It's our good friend, Jared Watt, who has long been a producer here, but rarely ventured in front of the mic. Jared, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Chad. It's a pleasure. And just to make the complete mix of accents you can hear on this
3: podcast. Yes, I'll be taking over in the interim uh, while you move on and I'll be, of course, contacting our colleagues in Washington, San Francisco, Shenzhen, Beijing, Tokyo, Brussels and now London for the China Geopolitics Podcast. Don't forget, folks, we are also putting out a weekly newsletter, our brand new listening post podcast review newsletter But Chad... Thank you so much for coming in and hosting this podcast here. It's been great working with you, and we wish you all the best and happy travels.
2: Well, thanks so much, Jared. And, you know, as always on this podcast, you can look to scmp.com for our analysis, updates, breaking news, anything you may look for about China, the UK, and the EU. As well, you can look at at scmp economy on Twitter, and I'm at Chad Bray. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Happy trails.